The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Tonight we're going to be in Mark chapter 10, and this text has been um, blessing me, challenging me, and I'm very excited to share it with you guys tonight. So Mark chapter 10, verse 14 is where we will be, and um, this is a hard text. It's a challenging text. Um, it's the story of the, the rich young ruler and, uh, and where Pastor Danny left off was another hard text. And there's just, there's some of these texts in scripture that are so incredibly challenging. And yet to me, um, I'm someone I, I like to exercise. And, and as I look at the more challenging the exercise, the more it produces within me endurance and strength and fitness and really the reason for my exercise to, to grow stronger and healthier. And, and these hard texts, they are challenging, but they produce in us greater endurance and strength and perspective. And so while they're challenging, they are enriching and they are a blessing. And let me just start with this. Uh, I just thought this was a fun quote from Tim Keller on on harder texts uh, to process. It says, Jesus' sayings are like hard candy. They are not like chocolate, which you can let melt in your mouth, swallow, and it's gone, a momentary pleasure. No, with hard candy, if you try to take it in too fast, you're likely headed for the dentist chair or the Heimlich maneuver. Many of Jesus' sayings are like that. You work on them. You work into them and you work through them. And only then are you rewarded with layer after layer of increasing sweetness. And so I love these texts for that reason. There's something that we get to work through. We get to allow the text to work in and through us to find their place and for God to process within us. And really this one, it's pretty straightforward and simple, and yet its depth is incredible. So. Let's read the whole text and then we'll pray. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, Now as he, as Jesus was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to it that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 18. So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to them, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Verse 21, then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it all to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word. He was really, he was grieved at this word and he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Let's keep reading. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to inherit the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at these words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished at this saying. And among themselves, they said, then who can be saved? Verse 27, but Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God, all things are possible. And then Peter, being Peter, began to say to him, see what we have left all. We've left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, assuredly, I say, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake in the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions also, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. 
God, we ask for your hand, your purpose, your blessing on this text. We want to be your sons and daughters ready to receive your loving instruction. God, all of which is a calling into richness and blessing, all of which is your joy beckoning us, your peace offered to us, Lord God. And so we pray, Lord, that we would take this text in. We would be ready to process it, accept it, receive it, and let it transform our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, as a child, one of our favorite activities, I say our because I have a twin brother, doesn't look anything like me, goes to church here, serves in Sunday school. But my twin brother, I always have to say that because I'm always afraid someone's going to be looking for another bald man out on campus thinking he's brown hair, full of head of hair, two inches taller, doesn't look anything like me. Um, our favorite activity as a kids, we were obsessed with baseball and specifically within that, we were obsessed with baseball cards. And, and the thing that we would do when we, it was too early to go outside uh, was we would wake up and we would get out all of our cards. We'd get out our, our, our nicest cards in the cases, we'd get out our binders and we'd get out our uh, boxes of cards that couldn't make their way into the binders. And we would we'd start trading, which got old fast because there was only two of us and we'd already traded all the cards we were going to trade, you know? Uh, and, uh, and so we'd trade cards, but then what we would do is we would start recategorizing, reorganizing our cards. Sometimes we'd adjust it to where it was organized by position, and, but more often than not, it was just favorite to least favorite. And so all the way at the front, for me, I was a catcher. I had the catchers at the front, you know, and Ivan Rodriguez and Benito Santiago and others. Uh, and, then, and then so on down to the ones that were, you know, less favorite. And, uh, but then really the, the prized really places were, were the cases. We each had about five cases. These cases, they're like plexiglass type things. There's different kinds of cases. We had a variety of types of cases. But, but each of us, had one prized case. Uh, this case uh, was two sides and it actually had screws in each corner. You had to get a screwdriver to open it. And that case held just our most prized possession. Uh, for each of us, for, for most of our childhood, that would have been our 1989. We each had one. Mom always had to make things even with twins. But that would have been our 1989 King Griffey Jr. rookie card. We didn't have the upper deck one. For those collectors out there, that's the creme de la creme. Uh, I had the Fleer. My brother had the Tops one. But uh, that, was, that was our nicest case. That's what went there because that was the card that would never make it into the binder. That was the card that, that would never go into the box. And heaven forbid that was a card that was never going to be in between some bike spokes making you know, motorcycle noises. Uh, that, was, that was the card that we esteemed the greatest value to. And tonight, what I want us to look at, and I start with this kind of mentality, is this idea that Jesus is our treasure. That's really what I believe this, this story is about, is Jesus coming to this man and him singling down in onto where this guy had placed something else in that most valued position. It wasn't that God wasn't in maybe the top row of cases or at least in the front of the binder, but he wasn't in that prized possession. He wasn't this man's greatest treasure. And as believers, he calls us to be a people who put him in the position of our greatest treasure, that he is the thing that we value the greatest. He is the the place in our life that everything else revolves around. Every other scheduled item, every decision, every goal, every other relationship can only be valued properly when he is put in that first case. If we ever were organizing, if we ever had taken every single card out of its case and we started to put them back into their case, we would, we would certainly realize at some point if we had forgotten to put Karen Griffey Jr. back in that primary case. And we would have had to then take everything back out 
and put it back into its proper case so that that could be in the primary case. And yet the tricky thing for us as believers is it's not always as cut and dry as these cases that I'm describing. For us, it's not something that we weekly, every Saturday morning, take a time to, to reassess our values. We don't do that, right? And we, it's not as clear cut. And so for tonight, really, my goal is that as we process this text and as we come to the end of this night in some times of worship, that we spend time just asking God, is there, are there things that are in the wrong cases? And primarily, are you in the primary position? Are you in the place of greatest value and greatest esteem? And so with this text, we have to be careful of two things before we even get started. One, the desire to whittle it away into no longer being a radical demand, instead it being something a little more reasonable. We have a way of, of limiting and mitigating what God is calling us to. And so we need to, to not make this a less radical demand because really what God calls us to is radical. It's, it's extreme, it's all-encompassing. And then secondly, we need to avoid the inclination of making this text apply to someone else and not ourselves. Uh, and so with this, we will look at the topic of money because that's what he's dealing with here. Uh, but I believe he's dealing with this broader issue of just anything and everything also that we would treasure or put in too high of esteem. But even while we're on this, the topic of money is important. And uh, in, in scripture sees it that way because it's a, it is an uh, instrument through which we see where our hearts is often at, are often at. We see where we are off or askew in how we are approaching God oftentimes through our money. Scripture shows us this because there's about 500 verses throughout the Bible on prayer. There's about 500 verses throughout the Bible on faith. And there's over 2,000 verses in Scripture on money. Uh, there's about one in every 10 verses in the Gospels it has to do with our wealth. And this isn't because God cares about our money. It's because God cares about us. Every single thing that God comes to us to deal with is because of his love for us. And that's the emphasis of that, this text. That's my favorite verse in this text is that Jesus looked at him and loved him. And so when he deals with money, it's because he knows that's where our hearts are and that's where our minds are. Any good parent knows that as you're raising two children, we learned about this last Wednesday, uh, as you're raising children, you have to, throughout their life and as their interests change, you have to know what the thing is that they care the most about so that you can take it away when they are being um, disciplined, right? Uh, when it was younger, it would have been one thing, you know, it would have been certain toys for my kids. At this point, it's probably similar for most of us. It's screen time, uh, all-encompassing screen time. Uh, but you have to know those things. And it's not that I take it away because I care so much about their screen times. It's not because I want to play their Switch. It's not because I, I despise their screens or the things that they're watching and playing. It's because I love them. And this is the avenue through which I reach their hearts through which I approach what needs to be dealt with. And really, when we talk about money, that is the heart of our father. That his heart is not that he needs our money, which this gets messy and blurred in the church today because so many people within religions and every other part of life, they do care about your money because they want it from you. But God, our heavenly father, the creator, the designer, the expert who loves us emphatically. He just cares about us. He cares about you. He cares about me. And so he deals with our money. He deals with anything and everything that would take a place in our lives that would be in a position of improper prominence uh, that we have esteemed too highly. And so let's begin looking at the text and seek to pull out a few things that God would, would exhort us in. The first uh, thing as we enter into verse 17 is we see that something is still missing for this man. So verse 17 says, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, 
what must I do to inherit eternal life? So what we're going to see in this text is that this man is wealthy, we'll see later, and you kind of actually have to piece together from all of three of the Gospels where this story is told. He's rich, he's young, and he's wealthy, right? He has everything. And in a second, we'll also see that he's religious. He's, he's walked in all of the things that he's been called to walk in in order to be an upstanding, good, religious young man. He essentially, according to their day and age, has done everything he needs to do. And yet what we see as we begin looking at this text is that he knows something is still missing. He knows that he doesn't have everything he needs. That, that, that he's not satisfied. It's not enough. And I think that's a powerful message to us. That this man who, who anyone else in his life would have looked at him and thought, he's good. Like, what more could he want? He's the one that you would say on his birthday, I don't know what to buy him. He has everything, right? He's the one that you wouldn't have been able to pick apart any little thing in his behavior or how he conducted himself. And yet he, from that place of having what, what many would have thought is everything he needed, was the one who, who better than anyone could know that he was still lacking something. Because for those of us who, who are, have glaring holes as far as what we think we need, we have the privilege then of thinking that if we had that thing, more money, uh, we were in better shape, uh, a better job, this version of a, the type of family that we want or that type of relationship, if we had that, that would fix it. The amazing thing with this rich young man is that he, wasn't, he was no longer able to point at anything that he was missing and so he knew that when he was lacking, that it was something that none of this could fix and none of it could satisfy. And so he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But in this, we see, and I love these texts. I love, I love the text where Jesus leads someone on a journey, where he, as our heavenly father, you know, the heart of God walking in flesh, he sees him and we'll see he loves him and he wants to lead him to his greatest blessing, to his greatest flourishing. So he'll lead him on a journey. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, good teacher. He falls on his face, prostrate. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, the typical thing here would have been to say, uh, good young man, you know, give him some kind of respect, accept his uh, esteemed uh, title that he had given him. But instead he says, why do you call me good? And then Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not, not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. And he goes through a list of, of the commandments that you shall not do these things. He says, so you've come to me. You've called me good teacher. And then you've asked me, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he gives him just, well, you know the laws. Something we have to see here that I think is fascinating is because there's so many questions in this text, but one of the first ones I ask myself is, why did Jesus just jump immediately away from where anyone would have expected him to go? Even for all of us, if we've read, read the rest of the gospels, we think Jesus is gonna immediately go to what's the greatest commandment? Right? That's what he does in other texts. Love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. Right? That's typically where he goes. But instead, he goes straight to, why do you call me good? Is it because Jesus is doubting whether or not he was good? Absolutely not. Is it because there's any question of whether or not he's God in walking among us? No, it's not. What he is asking this guy is, am I another guru? Am I another Pharisee? Am I another religious leader who can give you something to tweak, to adjust? Am I Yoda in the swamp giving you some extra little thing to adjust your, your, your expertise or your spiritual life? Or am I Lord who you fully submit to? And this is ultimately where he's going to lead this man. He's going to lead him on a journey. And so he begins it right off the bat by saying, why do you call me good? 
Am I just an esteemed person who you are looking for something to add on to your faith? Or am I Lord who you are willing to to relinquish all control to, who you're willing to lay everything down before, which is it? And so he goes through these commandments with, I would think, some anticipation of how this man would answer. Because then he answers, I, I, I believe, as Jesus would have expected, I've done all of these things. He says, you know, have you, have you stolen? Have you committed adultery? Have you lied? Have you defrauded someone? Have you honored your parents? He says, I've done all of these things. But he doesn't say, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Have you had any other gods before me? And so Jesus asks him all this, and he says, I've done all this. And then Jesus says to him, well, first it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. And he tells him, sell all that you have and come follow me. I think too often we come to God with kind of where Jesus was dealing with him at. We come to him as the guru. And we come to him saying, as this guy did, what must I do or what must I add? We want something to do. We want tasks. We want accomplishments. We want a list. We want to feel like we've gotten there. But then, or also, we want to have our life as it is, which is where I believe this guy was at. Like, I'm so far. I've done so much. I've got myself so close. I know I'm still missing something. <laughs> I, I always go to cooking analogies. And, uh, and it's like when you have a recipe, when you have a cookie, something you're making. And, uh, and uh, you know, my wife and I will be making a soup, a chili, baking something, whatever. And, and it's just like, what's it missing? That's more so where this guy is at. And that's more so where often we're at. Like, it's pretty good. I feel like I've done a lot. I feel like I'm close. What do I need to add? And God doesn't want us to come to him with what do I need to add? But it's how instead can I give you everything? What is in the way of you having that preeminent place in my life? And I think with this, for us who aren't in the position of this rich young ruler, we have the, the opportunity to believe that that things will satisfy. Like if I just had all these things and if I just add him in, that will be enough. That'll be able to get me there. That'll be able to fulfill me and complete what I want. But what God comes to us with is that none of that will get you all the way there. None of that will, will finish, will complete, will satisfy, will bring peace, will bring freedom. And so Jesus comes with some hard words. And he comes with some hard words because he loves him so much. Anytime Jesus comes to us with hard words, it's because he loves us. And I've grown to appreciate hard words. I remember one of the most direct hard words I've ever heard. Actually, it was kind of indirect, but it was poignant. Um, there was a pastor here named Mike Harrison, who was the junior high pastor, and uh, I interned under him, and I, I went with him to Missouri to help plant a church. And during that process, one of the things that we did was we moved all of their stuff to Missouri in a huge moving truck. Normally, the drive is like 28 hours. It took us like 40 hours because the truck was slow. We had to make different stops. And, uh, and so we were about four hours into this journey. We were in Blythe area, I remember. I literally, I can envision where we were when he said this statement. Um, and uh, so we're driving and uh, he says to me, you know, Jared, one of the things I appreciate about our relationship is that we can just sit sometimes in silence. We don't have to fill every moment with talking and with sharing and, you know, asking questions that sometimes we can, I, I appreciate that about our relationship. We could just sit in silence. Now that doesn't sound like that hard of a statement. In fact, it sounds like kind of like a compliment, but it was a hard statement because after he said that I stopped and thought to myself, I haven't stopped talking for the last four hours. <laughs> he's not making a, he's not telling me accurately. I love that about our relationship. He's more so speaking that into existence. 
He's more so telling me, isn't it, wouldn't it be great if you shut up? <laughs> and if we had the kind of relationship where we could just sit in quiet. Uh, and I loved those hard words because it was something I needed to hear. And it was out of love. And it was also out of his desire for a little bit of peace and quiet. Um, but here we come to Jesus' hard words, this hard response, which was in fact a tremendously loving response. And we see where we don't see anywhere else in the Gospels that we see Mark commenting on Jesus looked at him and loved him. And all of what he now says is fully out of he looked at him and he loved him. And he says, one thing you lack, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And then he says, and we'll get to this in a second, and then come and follow me. And we just have to really, really hone in on this fact. It directly follows his love. It is coming from, originating from his love that he calls him to this, that he calls him to this incredibly difficult thing. And with this, it is the loving heart of Jesus that puts his finger, and this is just how I, I picture it, it just puts his finger right into this spot that he just, he narrows it down, puts it right on the place where, uh, of what needs to be dealt with. And we see this in other places in the Gospels. We see this in Jesus at the well with the woman where he leads her on a journey of conversation again, all the way to where he's talking about satisfaction with her. And for her, her issue was the five different husbands she had had. And he gets his finger all the way straight onto that issue of where she was looking for satisfaction, of where she was looking to fill her needs. And he puts his finger on it. With a very different person, with um, Nicodemus, he, he leads him on a journey talking about having to be born again, putting his finger on this idea that Nicodemus thought he could get himself all the way into right standing with God. And he puts his finger right on where he needs to be dealt with. And our God who loves us so tremendously out of a place of great mercy and grace, he places his finger on those issues of what needs to be dealt with because he loves us. He leads us into these things. I've been teaching Jonah, the young adult group on Thursday nights, and uh, we just finished it this last week. And one of the things I just so loved in this time teaching through this text was how much it jumped out of me that sure, the story was about the people of Nineveh, but so much more so the, the story was about Jonah. Because God could have gone to anyone to use them to reach the people of Nineveh. I mean, the work that he did in Nineveh had almost nothing to do with Jonah because he gave a five-word message that was gruff and terse and non-explanatory. And even the animals had a revival, right? That everyone turned and worshiped, even the king in sackcloth and ashes. And so it wasn't about the Ninevites needing Jonah to do it. It was about the God of heaven and earth loving Jonah so much that he would patiently walk with him to deal with his heart throwing him into the ocean with this storm and these sailors, bringing him into the belly of the great fish, vomiting him up onto the shore, bringing him into the city, providing a plant to shade him, and then providing a worm to nibble it up, all to reach the heart of a wayward prophet who needed to know that Jesus is a God of grace that even he didn't deserve. And it's because God loved him that he put his finger into this issue and wouldn't let him stop at partial repentance going into Nineveh, but brought him all the way to the place of really seeing the heart of our father. And for each of us, he loves you too much to leave you where you're at. He loves you too much to not call you into his greatest blessing. He loves you too much to let you walk with uh, an improper understanding of how to pursue him fully let you have just a partial amount. I think of it like my son, uh, who uh, is the pickiest of our children eating. None of my kids are actually very picky, which is great for me. I love to cook for them. I love to feed them. But one of them is a little more picky than the rest. 
And he kind of looks at anything I offer him with skepticism because from a young age, I've just been trying to get him to eat, you know, anything and everything. And I remember, I remember the first, you know, there would be different things he wouldn't want to eat and I'd give up. I'd be like, fine, whatever, you know, uh, you don't have to try, you know, curry or you don't have to try sushi or whatever. But when he, I remember when he was two and he resisted a piece of C's chocolate and I'm just like, buddy, I love you too much to let you not eat this, right? I love you too much for you to, to let your hardness of heart in relation to this food stand in the way of your opportunity to, to receive this blessing, right? And so I pressed and I pressed. Finally, he ate it and oh, he didn't take convincing the second time. Uh, we had to hide the chocolate after that. But God calls us into hard things because they're necessary. He lovingly puts his finger because it's necessary and it's important for us to deal with things that are pulling us away from him. They're drawing us from having him in that position of prominence of most importance. And so I love these other hard texts that deal with this. And, and, and this one I think really stands out. Um, and that's Mark 9:43. Danny just taught it probably a couple months ago. It says, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Your hand is important. God's not diminishing. The word scripture is not diminishing the importance of your hand. But like he will later with a, high, a hyperbole statement of the camel and the, and the eye of the needle, he's making a point in this text of how important it is. It is worth cutting off our hand if it means we get to walk in all of the glorious blessing of God if the hand is getting in the way. It's worth plucking our eye out if that eye is keeping us from all of the glorious blessing. And it's worth putting the finger on this issue of what we are treasuring over and above him. It's worth it because it would be worth it to remove it completely. And God doesn't ask many people to get rid of all of their wealth. God doesn't just condemn wealth as a whole. He doesn't condemn the pursuit of money as a whole. But he calls us to remove it in instances like this, where like a drunk, you have no ability to rash, come to it with uh, control, with, with a proper approach, with putting it in its right place, where you then need to go completely away from alcohol. With this, you need to go completely for this man away from money because it has taken a place in your life that it should not be. And it has, it has become something that has pulled you away from God. I love also this text in Hebrews 12, this kind of same idea where it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witness coming off, you know, Hebrews 11, the, talking about all the heroes of faith, he says, let us throw away or throw off everything that hinders uh, and the sin that so easily entangles us unless run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. So he's saying that since we have so many examples of how God works and has blessed people, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sins that ensnare us. The idea of both of the, having both of these is yes, throw off the sins that keep us from God, but he also says throw off the things that hinder us meaning they're not necessarily sin. They might be good things, but if they're keeping you from God, then they are not the right things for you. Throw off anything that is getting in the way of you pursuing God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. Get rid of anything. Completely remove it if you have to, if it is keeping you from having God at the center and in the place of preeminence in your life. I love the story of Charles Lindbergh in his goal to cross the Atlantic Ocean, how when they built the Spirit of St. Louis, uh, he kept getting it lighter and lighter and lighter, and he would stop at nothing to achieve his goal to where at the final state, the Spirit of St. Louis had no windshield. He had a side window that was tiny that he would have to look out. 
It, had, it didn't have a regular seat. It had gas cans that were strapped together and constructed so that he could sit on gas cans to hold more gas to get him across the Atlantic. He even cut off the corners of his map so that he could eliminate the extra weight of the unnecessary paper because he was so bent on his goal of getting across the Atlantic that he wouldn't let anything hinder him from pursuing this goal. And for us, we are to eliminate, remove, get rid of anything that would, would infringe on our ability to fully and utterly and completely give God everything. And so God's pointing out our treasures. He's pointing out my treasures, the things that have disproportionate place in our lives that we've esteemed to do too great of an extent, that have found their way into a case that they should not be in. And he's, he's calling us to properly orient our hearts, to properly esteem where things are at. So here's the thing that we need to know about these treasures, is yes, it's absolutely money, and we'll get to that a little more in a second, but it can be anything and everything that can be a treasure that has taken a position it shouldn't. Our own families can be in a position that they shouldn't be in. They could be in a place to that where we even would, we would, we would create detrimental situations to our family because they have taken that preeminent place. They have taken the place of God in our lives. And so every thought and every concern and all of our worry and all of our fear are wrapped up in them. We live and we die with, with every little aspect of their lives because they have taken that place rather than having God on the throne and our love for our family being framed through, being uh, seen through the lens of he is of greatest importance. Our health can be something. The, there's things, these are not sins like we looked at in Hebrews, but there are things that can hinder us if they take the position they shouldn't. Our youthfulness, our time can be something that we, we over-prioritize. Our marriages can even be something that we over-prioritize. Our sleep, our, our, so many things can be things that we over-prioritize. And then here's the other thing about all of those is they can be also things that we pay with. So we don't just pay for our idols with, um, with money or with, uh, but we pay for our idols with our family also. Sometimes there's things that we, because we have made them of too great of importance in our lives, we pay for that. We pay for that hobby with, with our family and the, and the effort we should be putting in our family. Obviously, the first and foremost thing is we pay for those idols with the time and the effort and the attention that we should be giving to God. But we pay for those idols with our health. We pay for those idols with our time. We pay for those idols with our marriage. And so anything and everything can be an idol, and then we can also pay for our idols with anything and everything that's a part of our life that should be properly oriented. And then it just drilling down for a second on on the many different forms of idolatry of money. I think a lot of times we, we think of it kind of like an idolatry of money, of wealth, can be kind of like Scrooge McDuck. Like, I don't have a problem with this because I'm not looking to dive into, you know, a pool of gold, which any adult, I mean, as a kid, that looked fun to me, but any adult who would have walked through the room would have said, that just looks incredibly painful. Uh, that's not going to work. Concussion coming. Three, two, one, hitting the gold. Um, but, uh, but we think of a Scrooge McDuck is kind of, that's what it looks like. But really, when it comes to treasure, when it comes to money, uh, wealth as our idol, it can, be, it can be a number that is what we're pursuing. It can be comfort that we just want and need and desire these creature comforts, these things that, that make our lives easier or, or make our lives um, more pleasant. It can be our identity, that money gives us this, this identity that we want to be seen as someone who has a certain amount, that, that really it's how we present ourselves needs to look as though we have a certain amount in the bank account. Uh, it can be our security. This is a big one especially for nowadays where we live in a world where there's 
There's uh, money and savings. There's the whole Dave Ramsey structure of how much in savings, how much in investment, how much in retirement. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things, but, but we can place our, our idolatry on security. And I have to have this security. I have to build this up so that, so that I'll, I'll know that I'm taken care of when, when God calls us to put our, our confidence, our security, our comfort, our peace in him. Uh, we can have none of those things. We can have no money, no security, no comfort, and it can still be our idol because we are, we are so depressed and we are so longing for more money so that we can have what other people have. And so all of these can be forms of how we, uh, there's idolatry in wealth. And so we see here at this, uh, the man's face fell. He went away grieved when he heard Jesus's hard words. Obviously, we hope that he went away and he processed. Like I said, Jesus' hard words are like hard candy. It might have taken him a little while to work through this one. But the question for us is, what would we grieve over having to give up? It might be finances. It might be if Jesus told us to sell everything, that that would grieve us. But it might be a relationship. It might be an occupation. It might be a hobby. There's all sorts of different things. I know there's been a few different things for me that are honestly trivial that have been things that I've grieved over. Uh, at times, I've had uh, uh, an overemphasis on entertainment. I listen to things constantly, podcasts and books. It's a joke around the office here that I start so many sentences with, I was listening to this podcast, and then I tell them what the podcast says. Um, I've had an overemphasis on exercise. You can't tell from looking at me, but I really like to exercise. And, uh, and so just not wanting to give up time that I have allotted for hiking or running or different, and, and having to say like, okay, I, I need to be willing to give these up if, if I'm sacrificing my time with the Lord, if I'm sacrificing my pursuit of his presence over these things. And so what are those things? big, challenging, devastating, or even trivial that would cause us to grieve if we were to give them up. And so then we go on. We see the disciples processing Jesus' words because these were hard words for them to hear as well because it, it really messed with their paradigm of how they viewed wealth. And so uh, Jesus calls him to this and the disciples hear all of this uh, and, and they are stumped. They, they hear these words and Jesus looked around and he recognized how they were processing it. And he says, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God for people who are wealthy to enter the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, nothing is impossible. All things are possible with God. And so for them in their culture, and honestly, I think it persists in our culture, they viewed wealth as a sign of God's blessing. They viewed uh, all of how this guy's life had gone as just God's hand was upon him. And so when Jesus said that for, for this man, he had to sell everything, that really messed with how they recognized where God was doing good and God was, uh, where someone was, was walking with God and they weren't because this wealth was to them an indication of, of closeness to God, of doing well, of having walked properly. And so God, uh, Jesus here is questioning this. He's, he's causing them to, to really stumble over this idea that that wealth is something that can trip us up, that it can cause us to wander. And for them, it was something that is a sign of God's presence and blessing. And for us, I think it can be the same, that, that I know for me, I, I've had times where I really think it must be God's blessing if someone has. Where am I not right? Is there something off in my heart since I don't have this or I don't have that? And yet that's not at all how God works. That he... He does bring wealth. We see it in scripture to some people. And it's not necessarily that they are all called to give it up. 
but it's not necessarily a sign of blessing. That we see Paul in a prison being mightily used by God. We see, obviously, Jesus, who never had any wealth to his name, and yet obviously walking hand in hand with his Father in heaven. That wealth was not to be something that was an indicator of God's hand. And he goes on with this, and then Peter spoke to him and says, well, okay, if we're supposed to, if wealth isn't a sign of blessing, Lord, and if you're calling this guy to give up everything, Peter says to them, we have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home, brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for the gospel or for me will fail to receive a hundred times as much in the present ages, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. (sighs) Only a few minutes. I want to focus on one main thing here. Some translations take Peter's words to say, we have left everything to follow you. And then kind of with it, the implied, so what's in it for us? Like we've left everything. Let's say this guy sells everything to follow you. What's in it for him? What's in it for us if we leave everything to follow you? And Jesus goes through this list of there will be blessings. There's still persecution in this life, but there will be blessings. But the true answer that, that ultimately is here for Peter is, is, is what's in it for you? Jesus is in it for you. Jesus, our greatest treasure is your reward, is my reward, is Peter's reward. That is, we look at all of our other treasures and things that we esteem either properly or too highly to remove them from any place near the top and properly place Jesus at the top is to properly identify him as our greatest reward, as our greatest treasure, as the thing that we value to that greatest extent. And in doing so, we realize, we recognize, we properly approach the rest of life because we pursue after this greatest thing, Jesus, our treasure, Jesus, my treasure. As I was thinking through this, I was thinking like, what if, what if at some point, you know, I was getting married, you know, 17 years ago. And what if at some point I looked at everything I was giving up? I'm like, I'm no longer going to get to surf as much as I want. I'm no longer going to get to, you know, have sleep in a bed without someone elbowing me. I'm no longer going to get to pick whatever I want for dinner. You know, I'm not going to get to have whatever I want on the TV, all the sports I want to watch. I'm going to have to watch HGTV. You know, I'm no longer going to get to do everything I want. Like, I'm giving all of this up. And I looked at my wife and I said, what's in it for me? Right? And the answer from her, I would imagine, would be me. Like, hopefully that's enough. Like, you know, you put a ring on this finger. I was hoping that was something that you wanted, right? And as we come to God and we say, he says, he says remove anything from that place of most importance. Be willing to give anything and everything up. But understand this, like Jesus is our treasure. And then on the inverse of that, we have to understand that we are his treasure, that he gave up everything for us. He became flesh to live amongst us because he identified you as his treasure as the thing that he was willing to give up his place on a throne at the right hand of the Father. He's willing to give up and become human. He was willing to live this life. He was willing to lay down his life because he identified you as the treasure that was worth pursuing. And so he calls us to make him our treasure. And in this, like my son, I would promise you that that C's candy is going to be worth it. That the walk with Jesus as your great reward, as your treasure, will not disappoint. That he says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Dig into everything that he calls you into and experience the fact that it is abundantly worthy of anything and everything that you would set aside. Of everything that you would sacrifice, it's worthy. That Jesus is the best outcome for your life as a whole. Jesus is the best outcome for your family. He's the best outcome for your finances. He's the best outcome for your reputation. He's the best outcome for your relationships. He's the best outcome 
for your kids more so than any academic achievement or any athletic achievement or any reputation. He's the best outcome for your kids. He is our joy. He is our happiness. He is our fulfillment. Paul said it this way in Philippians 3, 8. He says, yes, all things I once thought were so important are gone from my life compared to the high privilege of knowing Christ Jesus as my master firsthand. Everything I once thought I had had going for me is insignificant. Dog dung. (laughs) I've dumped it all in the trash so that I could embrace Christ and be embraced by him. I didn't want some petty, inferior brand of righteousness that comes from keeping a list of rules when I could get the robust kind that comes from trusting Christ, God's righteousness. I gave up all the inferior stuff so I could know Christ personally, experience his resurrection power, be a partner in his suffering, and go all the way with him to death itself. If there was any way to get in on the resurrection from the dead, I wanted to do it. Jesus as our treasure is so abundantly worthy of that prime position. He's worthy of that best case. He's worthy of pursuing. And there is no doubt as we taste and see that anything and everything that we cut off Anything and everything that we remove, anything and everything that we demote, we would do it a thousand times over because he's worthy to be our greatest treasure. He is our treasure. He paid it all for you. You are his treasure. Make him your treasure. Let's pray. God, we are rich in love. We are rich in mercy, in grace, in joy, in peace. We are satisfied in your presence. What more could we want than to be your sons and your daughters? What could be a greater outcome for us? No career, no prestige than to live our lives fully in pursuit of you, dedicated to you, disciples, walking in the way of Jesus. I pray, Lord, that you would bring, Lord God, such vision to our hearts and our minds. Everything else would pale in comparison, Lord God, that we would be able to have the mind of Paul in hindsight saying it was all worthless in comparison. We are so glad. We are so satisfied in you. I pray this over us, Lord God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.